Thank you, Bert. Gene Allen again. And uh, could you turn your Bibles to Obadiah verse 1? Please. We'll be uh, in the second session, as I pointed out in the first session, we'll be looking at here in the second session, Obadiah 17, which teaches us a remnant of the descendants of Jacob will be holy and possess their land inheritance. This is now getting into us into the prophetic uh, section, prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. Verse, the first 16 verses have been fulfilled in history in the 6th century B.C. with the destruction of Edom, but now we have verses 17 to the end of the book are really, uh, talk, I'm going to start talking about the millennial reign of Christ and the fact that uh, Israel will be restored to her land a believing uh, a remnant will be restored to the land and there'll be a regeneration of the nation and we'll talk about that as well and uh, it, which is very um, the implications are in our day and age there are a lot of people think that the church has replaced Israel and that is not the case that's called supersessionism or replacement theology and uh, we don't uh, subscribe to that particular uh, teaching uh, so uh, that's what uh, we're gonna be looking in the second session and well, let's take a, um, we'll pray for this, uh, the lesson, but also prior to that, let's pray also for this offering. So if we could have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love, all the blessings that you've poured into our lives that we experience logistically and also the spiritual blessings that we have, our relationship with you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit, and other like-minded believers in the body of Christ. We thank you for blessing us in our personal lives, materially, financially, and we just thank you, Father, for uh, this time now that we can reciprocate and to express our thanksgiving toward you and love and appreciation for all the blessings that you've given to us because everything that we have is from you and we're just merely stewards. So we just pray that uh, you would accept our offering. We, we approach you and present it to you, this love offering, based upon the merits of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And so, Father, we just, uh, again, like to express our love toward, uh, toward you with this offering. And so we just pray for that, Father. And we also pray for the lesson, that we pray that this lesson would be uh, a blessing to your people. And this prophetic section of Obadiah, we pray that you would bless us in this uh, study. And today, help me in this study of verse 17 uh, to communicate this verse with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. Help your people in the audience to learn and understand and apply, to concentrate. And I just uh, thank you for those who are serious students of the Word of God. I thank you for the gift that you've given me. And I just pray that you would uh, use it and uh, to bless your people. And the Spirit would use me mightily and use your people mightily that are in the audience. And Father, we just pray that as a result, all of us in this ministry would continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Father, we pray for this offering and this lesson in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Obadiah verse 1. We'll read all the way to verse 17. Actually, we'll read the whole, we'll read the whole uh, chapter, whole book again, and then we'll look at verse 17 in detail. That's why... We'll stay, uh, keep everything in context. So Obadiah verse 1, and again the first 16 verses have been fulfilled prophetically in history in the 6th century B.C. And now with verse 17 we start looking to the future and the nation of Israel. So Obadiah verse 1 says, the vision of Obadiah, uh, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. 
we have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go up against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. And that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone at Esau's mountain will be cut down in the slaughter. Now that's the, the prophecy of their judgment. Now we have the nine indictments in verses 10 through 14, which serve, as we pointed out, as the basis for this prophetic uh, declaration of their judgment. Verse 10, because of the violence <clears throat> excuse me, against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations in the 6th century B.C. that attacked Judah. As you have done, it will be done to you, these nations that attacked Judah, including Babylon. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, now he's addressing, as we pointed out, the remnant of believers in Babylon, just as you drank of my wrath on my holy hill, so all the nations who attacked her and, uh, and, and dispersed her throughout the uh, nations and into Babylon, they will drink continually of this wrath of God. They will drink and drink and be as if they've never been. All fulfilled in history. Verse 17. Now we get the prophetic section. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau, the Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath, and the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers, verse 21, will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now, the word deliverance there in your translations, a little correction there. Deliverance is the word uh, pleita in the Hebrew, and this word actually means remnant. And, and uh, let me show you these other translations, because if you look at verse 17, it says, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. They're translating the word pleita. Now, 
notice the Net Bible, they have, but on Mount Zion, there'll be a remnant. ESV, they have, uh, but on Mount Zion, there'll be those who escape. Same kind of idea, a remnant. And uh, of course, the, the NIV has deliverance. So the word actually that they're translating is uh, pleita, and this word actually does mean remnant. In what sense? Well, it pertains to what is the leftover part of something or some group that's left over from a, a, a larger group. So here, in this context, it refers to a certain number of Jews who will have survived the Babylonian invasions in 605, 597, and 586 B.C., and the 70-year exile in Babylon. So when it talks about these, this deliverance, it's actually talking about a remnant of believers. I really don't know why the NIV translated it as deliverance, but uh, they're actually talking about these individuals, Jewish believers in the future, who will be delivered by, uh, by the Lord at his second advent. So I think that they were uh, what we call uh, doing a more dynamic equivalence translation. So I think that's what's exactly what they were doing. But literally the word that translating deliverance means remnant, as you could see, in uh, the Net Bible uh, makes that uh, clear. So here, again, when it talks about this remnant, is Jewish remnant, it's talking about those, uh, it, it refers to a certain number of Jews who will have survived uh, the invasions. Obadiah verse 17 says in my translation, however, a remnant will live on this mountain, which is in Zion. In fact, it will for certain, for certain be a holy place Furthermore, Jacob's descendants will, as a certainty, possess their, their own land inheritance. So Obadiah 17 contains three more prophetic declarations which stand in direct contrast with the previous four de uh, declarations that we saw in verse 16. So therefore, people, the contrast between verses 16 and 17 is that a remnant of Jews will once again be a national entity with geographical boundaries, but those Gentile nations which destroyed Judah as a national entity, as a result of the Babylonian invasion of 586 B.C., will no longer exist as, a, as national entities. Mount Zion refers to the city of Jerusalem. And Obadiah, verse 17, the reference to a remnant in the first prophetic declarations uh, will, refers to Jews who lived during the millennial reign of Christ. There's, those of you who have my notes, if you notice right after deliverance, you have my little, if you notice, I read past it. There's a typo in my notes. That's why I didn't read it. It's not talking about the, Babylon, the, the people survived the Babylonian invasions in the 6th century B.C. It's actually talking about the believers, a remnant of believers in the future during the millennial reign of Christ. I'll tell you why that is. So uh, d disregard that uh, note under deliverance there. It's not accurate. So uh, we see here that the reference... The reference to a remnant in the first prophetic declaration here in verse 17 is echoed in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, and Joel 3, 17. So uh, there's, uh, there's some indications as to why this is talking about the future of the nation of Israel during the millennial reign of Christ. Because if you notice verse 17, look at your Bibles, but in Zion... Let me give it the NIV here. But on Zion, there will be deliverance, or we will say a remnant of believers, and it will be holy, Mount Zion. This is the indication he's talking about the future. When he says, it will be holy, Mount Zion, it's never been holy, okay? In the 6th century B.C., it was defiled by the Gentiles. It's being defiled today, okay? It will only be holy when Christ is there worshiping in Jerusalem. So this is telling us now... He's, that's an indication that we're, it's not to talk about the future because 
the, 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 the Mount Zion has been defiled by the Gentiles. This is another indication. We're living during the times of the Gentiles. Jesus mentioned that in Luke 21. We'll have, probably have time to go see it. He talks about the times of the Gentiles. This is when the Gentile nations are the superpowers of the world. It's when Israel will be subjugated to these superpowers. And so it started with the Babylonian invasions in 605, 597, and 586 BC. That began the times of the Gentiles, when the Gentile nations will be the superpowers. That's in contrast to the millennial reign, where there'll be one superpower, Israel. And they'll control the whole Mediterranean, Mesopotamian region of the world, all that land has been promised to them by God under the Palestinian covenant, which is actually an offshoot of the, the Abrahamic covenant. We'll probably get the time to see that as well. So we know there's a context change here. We're talking now about prophecy that's yet future, that has not been fulfilled, and this is indicated by this. But on Mount Zion will be a remnant, a remnant of believers, and it will be holy. It hasn't been holy for a long time, the Temple Mount. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Israel has never possessed all of her land that was promised to her by God under the Abrahamic covenant. It, they've never done that. It, it's, uh, hold your place. Look at the book of Genesis. I'll show you there. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> here's why the nation of Israel always exists, and here's why they're going to be uh, the rulers of this earth with Christ as their king ruling the nations and the millennial reign of Christ because of the promises that God made under the Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants. Unconditional promises, which means even if Israel fails, and this is why the people who are involved in replacement theology that think the church is the new Israel, and this has been going on in theology for a long time, and the dispensationalists like Wolverd, Schaefer, Pentecost theme, guys like that, uh, Swindoll, they came out, no, it's, we have a distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, the church as, is not Israel, though the remnant of Jews in the church, there's a remnant of Jews in the church, along with Gentile believers that form the church, but there's church, which is two races, born-again believers, Jew and Gentile, and then there's the Jews, the regenerate Jews, that have the remnant of Israel, the believing remnant. So in other words, the, 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 the apostles, for instance, they were promised to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel, yet their teaching is the foundation of the church. So they are unique in history of believers. They're both part of the nation of Israel as a, as a, as a national entity, but they're also part of the church, okay? So we see here that those unconditional promises that were given to Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Jeremiah, and the Jewish people, those unconditional promises say that despite the fact that you fail, I remain faithful, okay? So God raises up a remnant of believers, Jewish believers, in every dispensation they are called Messianic Jews today. In fact, if I got time, I'm going to read you a quote from one of these great scholars, Dr. Arnold Freuchenbaum, who is a great uh, scholar and a Messianic Jew. And, uh, and so it says, in Gen look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, please. Genesis 12, 1. The Lord said to Abram, this is before he got his name changed, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. So he's just saying, tell them all goodbye. 
and I'll show you what it looks like when you get there, is what he does. This is talking about faith. I will make you into a great nation, fulfilled in history, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. And that's been fulfilled in history as well. His name is great among the Christians. He's the father of our faith. He's the, he's the progenitor of the Jews. They call Abraham father. And the, Muslim, and the, and the, and the Arabs, of the, the two branches of the Arab, which actually came from Abraham, and through Ishmael, and also through, uh, after Sarah died, Abraham gets uh, married, and, uh, and he has six boys with her, and so that's the other group of Arabs. So they call, the, the descendants of these groups are actually calling Abraham father. You go in the Middle East, they call him father as well. So certainly his name is made great and fulfilled in history. Then it says in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And the United States of Israel has been blessed. One of the reasons why they've been blessed is because we promoted uh, the, the, the restoration of the Jews to their land. We've helped them. We're their biggest ally. And that's why I think if the rapture happens in our day and age, uh, then they're in trouble. And that's why they'll turn into Christ, if, if it happens in our day and age or the next generation. So I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And uh, Hitler is, uh, can attest to that, his Nazi Germany. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And all peoples are blessed through his greatest descendant, Jesus Christ, who is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And through faith in Jesus, all the nations are blessed. And that's what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3. So then it says in verse 4, So Abram went, is his act of faith, as the Lord had told him. And by faith, Hebrews 11, 8, Abraham, by faith, he believed God. He obeyed God. By faith, he obeyed God. Faith produces obedience to his word. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him, his nephew. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And he took his wife, Haran would be, so basically he's in the Mediterranean, he's where Iraq is today. They take the travel, they didn't go across the desert, you go right up north to a place called Haran. And then they'd come back down. In fact, all the armies that have ever, and this is going to be true uh, in the future, all the armies of the ancient world like Assyria or Babylon or Rome, they came in from the north. The trade route from there, Haran from Haran, then they come in. They never came in through the, across the desert or south. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and went with, Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions that they had accumulated. He was a very wealthy man in that day and age. And the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. And Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the, Lord, the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give you this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So he had, there's, the, there's the first mention. So the Palestinian covenant is a land grant given to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in particular, those Jews who trust in the Lord. In our day and age, those are the ones who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to, they're going to uh, inherit this. That's their inheritance during the millennial reign of Christ. So look at chapter 13. So this Palestinian covenant, we call it but we, the land grant. It's a part of the Abrahamic covenant. So look at, uh, look at uh, uh, chapter 13. Look at verse 10. Actually, verse 1. Genesis 13, 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had and Lot with him. And Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place where between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier. 
and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, was, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's and the Canaanites and the Perizzites who were also living in the land at that time. Verse 8, So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. He's being very magnanimous here. He's the one who's the older. He's, he's, he's talking to his nephew. The nephew should have been def deferring to Abraham, but he didn't. Is not the whole land, he says to him, before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. And this was a fateful mood, a move on the part of Lot. Lot went to Sodom and Gomorrah. It was beautiful, but it would not be beautiful much longer. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east, and the two men parted. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted with him, he says, Look, look around from where you are to the north and the south and to the east and the west. And from where he was, you could see all the way to Iraq. Okay? He said, look to the, around from where you are, to the north, the south, to the east, and the west, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. As a passage in Deuteronomy, we get enough chance, Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 10, he tells you the boundaries. So it's going to go up into where Turkey is today, down to, the, to uh, northern uh, um, Africa, all the way to the Euphrates River, and the Mediterranean will be the western border, that's Israel's inheritance. And they've never, ever in their history, haven't come close to having even one twenty-fifth of the land. They've never, in fact, they're just like, I think, what is Rhode Island? I think uh, Texas obviously is bigger than that. Uh, Rhode Island is, it's not, not very big when you go to Israel. You know, if you look on the map, it's tiny, okay? That's not what it's going to be like during the millennial reign of Christ. Going to be, and now, and when the millennial reign of Christ happens, everything's flip-flop. For where you have the Gentile nations, the times of the Gentiles, it will be ended, and Israel, with their king, Messiah, Jesus, will be ruling over the earth. So he says to Abraham, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Now go back to Obadiah, verse 17. So, this reference, this reference to a remnant in Obadiah 17 which is translated deliverance in your in the NIV. It does not refer to those Jews who returned from the Babylonian exile. Because Obadiah describes Mount Zion in the second prophetic declaration in this verse as a holy place, as I pointed out to you. And it has never been a holy place during the times of the Gentiles. It was, they destroyed the Temple Mount, they destroyed Jerusalem, the Gentiles defiled it. Okay? And so... Even, in the, even during the time, you know, Jesus, when he, when he was there at the temple, when he came in, what were they using the place for? It was run by gangsters. Ananias, who ended up, had him uh, executed, Ananias was a gangster. These people defiled the temple, that Jesus was trying to purify the temple and move these people out. When he was there, it was holy because he cast out the money changers and everything. 
But then the Gentiles defiled it again with the destruction of the temple. In fact, what's quite interesting, Pompey, before, you remember Pompey and Gaius Julius Caesar, okay? Pompey was the rival of, uh, he was the great Roman uh, uh, general. And then, but Gaius Julius Caesar and his army crossed the Rubicon, okay? And Pompey didn't want to confront them. He's kind of like General McClellan in the, in the Civil War for the North. He didn't want to fight uh, 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 Gaius Julius Caesar, but he, gets, he ends up getting decapitated on the beaches of Egypt. Or near the, the, the Mediterranean, he was killed there. But he never confronted Gaius Julius Caesar, who came across. And so Pompey, one of the things I think led to his downfall, downfall and his demise was that he went into the Jewish temple and took a little look in there. You don't do that. And so God, I believe, executed him uh, with that uh, on the beaches of, uh, in Egypt. I feel he executed him because he shouldn't have been going in there into the holy, uh, holy, holy place. He went in there. You don't do that. Gentiles don't go there. In fact, when the Herod's temple was standing, there was a section for the Gentiles. Remember, they accused Paul of bringing a Gentile believer into the, the, temple, Jewish, the Jewish section of the temple. There's the court of the Gentiles. All right, you get the court of the women. The, the rest, where the men, the Jewish men went to, they worshiped. That's where Jesus went and the apostles. Gentiles were not allowing them. There used to be, there's a sign that they have archaeology is on earth, and it says anybody, any Gentile that crosses in here will be, will be executed, okay? So we see that, him, that back in, in, in uh, Herod's day, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and ascension at the right hand of the Father, that temple has been defiled. The G Gentiles have defiled. That whole area is not holy. So we see that this reference to a remnant in Obadiah 17 does not refer to those Jews who returned from the Babylonian exile because as I said before, Obadiah in verse 17 describes Mount Zion in the second prophetic declaration in this verse as a holy place. And it has never been a holy place during the times of the Gentiles. So this is another indication of why you pay attention to context. Get details. You got to be paying attention to details. And I'm complaining about the people who come into the pulpit who have no business teaching the Word of God because they don't pay attention to context. They don't pay attention to sound interpretive rules. Context is one of them. Literary context, historical context, the Bible's written in, and the literary context. What are we reading? What section of the passage are we reading? I try to point that out to you because a lot of pastors will not do that because they're lazy. They're lazy, and their people are lazy, and they're following them in their laziness. And if you're, if you're not a lazy believer and you want a pastor who is not lazy, get out of that ministry where the pastor's lazy, who's going to do his job and point out to you things that you might find a little, a lot of believers might find cumbersome, but if you really want to go somewhere in God's plan, you have to have respect for his holy word. It's holy. It shouldn't be treated as something profane. It's not any other book. It's the book that's changed the course of history, brought down the downfall of nations. That's right. We just read that. Downfall of nations is predicted in this book. God the Holy Spirit inspired. We study this in our, our weekday classes. And so this should be treated holy, this book. And when pastors don't pay attention to context and their congregations don't pay attention to context or they don't even open the Bible. They, how many, let's do a little, little survey around here in, in, in Alabama. I could see in Massachusetts, but in Alabama, have they ever taught the book of Obadiah around here? Has anybody heard Jude? Who's anybody had the guts to teach Romans? We need the word of God and this is where revival needs to come about. I don't care if you're singing, uh, around the, running around the rosy, or ring around the rosy, and singing all these songs. If you don't have the Bible taught, 
You've got no revival. None. It's the word of God that changes people's character. It's word of God and nothing else can bring us revival. But we will, we're lazy in this country because of the television and the internet. We're very passive. We've been indoctrinated to the devil's way of doing things. He's just simply, he's like the, you ever that story my pastor told me? You get the frog and you, you, know, you put the frog in the pan and with water and you turn it up little by little by little by little and finally the, the frog is, he's gone. He's out and never knew it hit him. That's what's going on with Christianity today. We got the dumbing down of Christianity. You're supposed to love your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. The heart's not the cardiovascular system. It's the right lobe of your soul. And yet you've got these emotional Christians who want to sit there and sing, sing, sing. I love singing. I'm going to play a song at the end of the, at the, end of the day. A little surprise for my buddy over there. And I'll tell you, I love music. You, I know many people who are musicians, great, love music. But that doesn't take priority to the proclamation of God's word. Jesus taught every day in the temple. Every day. That's what we need. The apostles, they, when, they taught as often as they could. That brings revival. And when I'm talking about revival, I'm talking about a resurgence of Christianity's influence in the country. It starts with the word of God. And look at, we can't, you know, don't, don't worry about these other Christians, they're not doing that. We need to worry about ourselves first. Then we can start to take the log out of our brother or sister in Christ's eye. We need to see if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And as many as you, I see around, I see you all the time, serious students of the word of God. You take this seriously. And so if there's going to be a revival in this country, it's going to start with people like you that care about God's word, that are here and sitting in a Bible class, even if your back is killing you, and you're still sitting there, and you're, 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 you don't feel well, but you're here anyways, because you're loving God with all your strength. So, by holy here, the writer means that Jerusalem will be dedicated and devoted and set apart for the worship of the God of Israel exclusively. It hasn't been set apart to serve the, the worship of the Lord exclusively during the times of the Gentiles, which began uh, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian invasions. And there was a brief interlude when Christ came to his temple, all right, and he cast out the money changers. I believe he did that a couple of times. These people were gangsters. They were all about the money. And I was, I was talking to, and this is what a lot of churches are like today. I was, talk, I was talking to Ray before class. Sit around and talk to Ray long enough, you learn a lot of things. Ray said, at this church he went to in this area, they judged the pastor on how many rear ends he put in the seat. Really? And he was embarrassed because the, guy, the, 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 the people who were running the church were chewing the pastor out and giving them the load down. You need to get more people in the seats. As if he's an entertainer. All about money. Look at that. One, of the, one of the things I admired when I first came in, what got me so hungry and excited to come here, is Pastor Peak. He didn't make money an issue. You can look on my website. I don't charge for any of my teaching. In fact, I will write. I have a, a blog. You could down a little article tells you why I don't charge. And it's not, look at. I'm not look at. I'm, I don't deserve a medal for it because. That's what I should be doing, not charging for the word of God. Freely I've received, freely I give. And 
I can't, I'm not going to let my teaching, and I know Pastor Peak was the same way, I'm not going to let our teaching be a, uh, putting a price on it, as a, that would money, putting a price on it will cause a stumbling block to somebody hearing the gospel. That's why we have people all over Africa, Pakistan, India, that they love this ministry because they don't have to spend $25 to get a book. I don't use publishing houses. You can download my stuff free of charge. You want to know, you want to read the whole book of Obadiah, the Exegesis and Exposition? It's there, PDF format. You can download it for free. Because money, I'm not going to let money ever, ever get in the way of somebody hearing the gospel. If somebody can't hear the gospel, if they can't afford, if they can't afford the, 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 the money for the book, how are they going to get the gospel? And yet you got guys who are revered in the, in the world today and they, they charge for their books. Jesus and the apostles did that. You, you have a right to earn your living from the gospel, it says. The pastor says that. Galatians 6, 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Big passage, right? But we don't, I don't see anywhere it says we have a right to put a price on anything. Did Jesus say, and the apostles, hawking their books, nine ninety five for my new, my new thing, the Sermon on the Mount. Do you see Jesus doing that? And the apostles, or do you see Jeremiah? Come on, I got this new scroll. And it's the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah, our kingdom, by Babylon. $29.99. I've seen scholars on Facebook who are hawking their books on tel- on, 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 online. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed, and they're going to get theirs yet at the Bama seat. No rewards. Money should never, ever stand in the way of the word of God being taught. So Jesus cast out the money changers. He had a problem in that day with people who were all about the money, so-called believers who were about, they're all about the money. These churches are all about the money. They're building up a huge church down the road. Oh, good for them. I, I thought it was a football stadium they were building. No, it's going to be a church. Really? Why do you need such a massive church? Because I say, if you're teaching truth, the crowd is never going to be that big. Because if you're, if you're not teaching the truth, and you're teaching blowing smoke at people, we say, say in Massachusetts, you're going to get a big crowd. That's why, they, that's why they do the dog and pony show, and the entertainment, and let's go up and have, you know, uh, well, who's, our, who's the big guy now? Cla- Joel Osteen. I almost said Claude Osteen, who was, a, who was a, pe- a left-handed pitcher for the Dodgers back in my day. Joel Osteen and his beautiful wife, and he trots her up there, and oh, this, this is wonderful, and he's got Dodger Stadium packed out. And never once mentions the, the, the cross. He's, a, he's repulsed by the cross. He's embarrassed by the cross. Never mentions it in his books. And Christians flock to this guy. Like he's, the, he's unbelievable. He's the wolf in sheep's clothing, and there's many like him, Benny Hinn, all the, I'll name names. Stay away from them. And there's a, some evangelical guys who people think are so great, I tell you right too, to stay away from them too. Because they're all about the money. So... There was only one time. I mention all this because the Lord made sure that it wasn't defiled by the money changes during his first advent. But other than that, that place has been desecrated, and it is to this day. So by holy, the right of means that Jerusalem will be dedicated and devoted and set apart for the worship of the God of Israel exclusively. And this has never been the case during the times of the Gentiles, which refers, again, to a period of human history, which we're right in now, in which God is disciplining the nation of Israel for her corporate rebellion against them. I say corporate because there is always this minority 
in Israel that will be believing, and there is today. So further indicating that this remnant is referring to regenerate, born-again Jews during the millennial reign of Christ is that Israel has never in her history, even up to the present moment, fully possessed the land inheritance promised to her by God. So this reference to a remnant in the first prophetic declaration in Obadiah 17 speaks of one of the most critical doctrines found in the Word of God, which is that of the remnant of Israel. This doctrine, people, very important, it asserts that within the Jewish nation, God will always set aside a certain number of Jews who believe in Him. And every dispensation and in every generation in human history. Therefore, there's no such thing as the church has replaced the nation of Israel. I, I told you the story. Somebody, and I get this all the time. I get this uh, on Academia EDU. You can download my stuff, and you can give a reason why. And a lot of people do. So it puts me in contact with scholars, lay people, all kinds of people, all around the world. And this one woman says, you're, a, you're a teaching false doctrine. The church is the new Israel. And I said... Really, he said, so you believe that God's done with the Israel? Yeah, he divorced her. Oh, yeah, he did. Okay? So I said, however, uh, did you read Jeremiah in the New Covenant? And look at all, read past 31, 34. Go all the way to the end. You'll see that Israel will always exist. Uh, look at, uh, hold your place. Look at Jeremiah 31. I'll show it to you. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. Look at verse 31. The new covenant. God says, I will keep this nation around to the end of... It'll always be around. You can't wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Hitler tried. Stalin has tried. Stalin probably killed more Jews than Hitler did. And you got these anti-Semitic people out there today. You're not going to wipe these people off the face of the earth. They're going to exist, always exist. In fact, they're going to be the rulers of this earth someday. And you'll be gone. Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Keep going. And this is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. And the Almighty is his name, the master and creator of the time-matter-space continuum. Verse 36. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth be below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. And I sent that email back to her of this passage and I still am waiting for a response. It just goes to show you, it's not your opinion that matters. You don't come here to listen to my opinion 
or any pastor's opinion, you want God's opinion. You go back to Scripture. I don't agree with that. Well, guess what? If I got Scripture, you need a change. That goes for me. I've come across certain things I don't believe anymore. As far as interpretations, and I change them because I don't see it supported. I've learned more, and that's what you'd want from your pastor, that he continue to grow, and if he's still the same as he was 30 years ago in his interpretations, you might have a problem there. So if you're growing, you're going, not changing the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, justification by faith, confession of sin, rebound, uh, the, the hypostatic union of Jesus, the atonement. I'm not saying we, we don't, those are non-negotiables, the Trinity, okay? But I'm talking about certain inter interpretations of certain passages. So there we have, go back to Obadiah 17 now, please. And we'll close. So, <clears throat> this doctrine of the remnant asserts that within the Jewish nation, God will always set aside a certain number of Jews who believe in him in every dispensation and every generation of human history. This is based upon the unconditional promises contained in the Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants, and all of which were given directly to the nation of Israel and not the church. So, very important we understand that. Now, a remem remember, or excuse me, a member of the, of the remnant, is very important. A member of this remnant, he must re meet two requirements. The first being that he must be Jewish. What do I mean by that? He must be biologically or racially descendant, not from just Abraham, but from Isaac and Jacob, because Jacob was the progenitor of the nation of Israel. Okay? So there were other people fathered by Abraham. So that's why I say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Also, and Asia, remember he had his name, Jacob did, to Israel, got it changed to Israel by God. And the other requirement is that they must meet, they must meet in order to be a part of the believing Jewish remnant, is they must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Obadiah predicts in Obadiah 17 that a remnant of Jews will, as a certainty, possess their own land inheritance in the future, he's referring to the Palestinian covenant, which is an offshoot of the Abrahamic covenant, as we just saw. And so we see, we see he's referring here again to the Palestinian covenant or promise of land to the descendants of Jacob who exercise faith in the Lord. Now, the second prophetic declaration in verse 17 of Obadiah asserts, as we just saw, that Jerusalem will once again be a holy place, which is echoed and expanded upon by the prophet Joel. And we don't have enough time to go there, but Joel 3, 17 through 21. Also, Zephaniah, a book we'll be doing in the future along with Joel. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 through 20 provides detailed information as to why Jerusalem and the land of Israel will be holy and why this regenerate remnant of Jews during the millennial reign of Christ will never be put to shame. It also tells us why this remnant will be holy. Now, all three prophetic declarations that we read in verse 17 of Obadiah explicitly speak of the future restoration of Israel and implicitly they speak of the future regeneration of Israel. Restoration, regeneration. What do I mean? Restoration is used by theologians this way. Restoration in relation to Israel and the believing remnant, it's used to describe God fulfilling his promises of land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, the Jews, during the millennial reign of Christ. And this restoration of a future remnant of Israel to the land promised to them under the Abrahamic and Palestinian covenants 
is echoed in Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, Ezekiel 36, 34 through 40, 37, and Zephaniah 320. Now, the term regeneration, it speaks of the national regeneration of Israel, which will take place at the second advent. That during his first advent, the majority rejected him, except for the small remnant led by the apostles. At the second advent, flip-flop. The majority in Israel, when they're faced with the prospect of annihilation at the hands of Antichrist and the, and the Gentile armies that have surrounded Jerusalem, and a small remnant, a pocket of Jews will be freedom fires in the middle of the city. But the rest of the Jews are dispersed throughout the Roman, all throughout the, the final stage of the Roman Empire, all throughout the world. But they'll be regathered by Christ at his second advent with the elect angels to bring them back to Jerusalem and Israel. So the term regeneration speaks of the national regeneration of Israel. Isaiah 54 speaks of the regeneration and restoration of Israel during the millennium. In fact, the dry bones passage in Ezekiel 37 and Romans 11, 25 through 27, both passages teach that the nation of Israel will experience a national regeneration and thus the forgiveness of their sins at the second advent of Christ. So therefore, all three prophetic declarations which are recorded in Obadiah 17 will all be fulfilled or find their perfect fulfillment during the millennial reign of Christ. And we'll close with this. All of these Old Testament passages that we have noted in our study of Obadiah 7 and 17 and, uh, and this doctrine of the remnant, which is taught in both the Old and New Testaments, makes clear that Israel does have a future in the plan of God and that the church has in no way replaced Israel permanently. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we, look, uh, we wait in anticipation, as the servant Paul said in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, the anticipation of the rapture, the resurrection of church when we're perfected, which triggers the 70th week of Daniel, as you've taught us, and ends with the second advent of Christ resulting in his millennial reign. And we just thank you for the fact that we're members of the bride of Christ, the future bride of Christ, members of the body of Christ, and help us to live the spiritual life in our daily lives and do our jobs as under the Lord, and, and, and also the husbands loving their wives like Christ loved the church, the wives obeying their husbands in all things as under the Lord, the children obeying their parents in all things as under the Lord. Help us, Father, to bring glory to you, practicing the command to love one another as we wait in eager anticipation of the coming of your Son. To, uh, to deliver us from the wrath to come upon this Christ-rejecting world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I'm going to sing us a song, and we'll get out of here. is not one I wrote. This song is, all songs are dedicated to the Lord, but this song is also dedicated to my good friend. And if he starts jumping up and dancing around, you know why. I wandered so aimlessly, filled with sin. I wouldn't ask my dear Savior in 
Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Just like a blind man, I wandered alone. Worries and fears I claim for my own. Then like a blind man, that God gave back his sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I was a fool to wander astray. Straight is the gate and narrows the way. Now I have traded the right for the wrong. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. No sorrow inside Praise the Lord I saw the light I saw the light I saw the light No more darkness No more night Now I'm so happy No sorrow inside Praise the Lord I saw the light Praise the Lord I saw the light Thank you.